everybody, and welcome to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jameson Coughlin, Senior Editor of LNG. Uh, the aim of our podcast is to explore the issues that matter most to North American natural gas uh, and beyond. I'm talking to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Pat Rao, NGI's Director of Strategy and Research, is joining me today. Uh, he's no doubt a familiar voice for listeners of Hub & Flow. Thanks for joining me, Pat. Tell us where you're at in the world today. Thanks, Jamison, for having me on. I'm actually in Northern Virginia. I've been here for much of the year. Normally, I'm in New York City, but since that's COVID central, I thought it's probably a good idea to get out before things got too bad. So looking forward to going home at some point, but Virginia bound for now. Yeah, that's that sounds like a good idea to me for sure. Okay, so Pat is going to help walk us through a little LNG 101 for those in our audience who might be less familiar with the space. Uh, and in particular, the commercial structures under which U.S. export terminals operate. This is kind of a podcast version of a How It Works column that appears in NGI's LNG Insight around the end of each month. Uh, in that segment, we explain the basics of the market and what makes it tick, You know, whether it's pricing, fundamentals, financing for big projects, how the shipping market works, those sorts of things. So be sure to head to our website to look for those if you're interested. So reviewing these commercial structures is relevant for sure right now. Uh, North American LNG exports are still relatively new. Uh, the first export cargo to leave the United States was shipped in 2016 from Chenier Sabine Pass facility. There are new export facilities under development in both Canada and Mexico, uh, along with many in the United States, of course, uh, but there are only six terminals currently operating in North America, and those are located on the U.S. Gulf Coast and in Maryland. So understanding the commercial arrangements that operational facilities have established and some other models that facilities under development are pursuing, um, it gives us a better idea of how North American LNG is priced, uh, what's attracted buyers to move even farther across the sea for it, and the roles various players have in the global market. So, Pat, we've basically got two dominant commercial structures that U.S. liquefaction terminals operate under. The first and most widely employed is the tolling model. So can you tell us about that and which facilities utilize it? Yeah, sure. Basically, the way to think of it is that the tolling facilities are the non-chenier facilities. So in this case, these would be Cameron, Cove Point, Elba Island, and Freeport. Uh, under tolling facilities, the various capacity holders are responsible for supplying natural gas to the facility and for arranging transportation of the LNG from the facility. They pay a reservation fee to the various facility holders and some variable costs as well. But those tolling facilities don't really take title to the gas. They are paid to convert natural gas from a gas to a liquid. Now, some companies have their own equity production in the United States, such as Osaka Gas, which has liquefaction capacity at Freeport. Uh, they own Sabine Oil and Gas. That's where they get their feed supply. Well, there are some others that use marketing companies to supply their gas, and the Appalachia is a great example, where Cabot Oil and Gas and WGL Energy Services, uh, they supply much of the feedstock gas to Cove Point, and the capacity there is largely held by Sumitomo and Gale Limited, and these are two entities that just may not have much of an upstream presence in the United States. Other types of capacity holders are portfolio players, such as Shell and Total, who have U.S. production and marketing capabilities, so they can much more easily arrange for the delivery of gas themselves. And by the way, Shell owns 100% of the capacity at Elba Island, so all the activity you see there is largely being done by them and for their own benefit. 
But again, just to quickly summarize, the main difference is the operators of tolling facilities are paid to liquefy natural gas into LNG, and the activities of getting gas to and hauling it from the facility are borne by the individual capacity holders of those facilities. Okay, so we could kind of think about tolling facilities like a pipeline then, uh, you know, which they, they don't own the gas but transport it because the tolling facilities never really take ownership of the LNG. They're just liquefying the gas, uh, right? I mean, is that a fair analogy? Yeah, as long as you're talking about interstate pipelines, that certainly is. The intrastate pipelines do have a merchant function still, and they can buy and take talented gas. But by and large, you're right, Jameson. It's it's very much like that for the interstate pipelines. Okay, good point on the interstate pipelines. Okay, this now brings us to the uh, second dominant structure, often referred to as the merchant model or SPA model, which stands for sales and purchase agreement. So what's the difference here, Pat? Walk us through it. Sure. And uh, just to uh, to clarify, I guess, from my standpoint, is that SBAs, uh, they're used by the two Chenier facilities. So we're talking here about Sabine Pass and Corpus Christi. Uh, with these, Chenier pretty much does everything. They buy natural gas feedstock themselves, and they have pipeline capacity on various pipelines throughout the United States. Chenier even built their own pipeline called Midship, which came online and entered service earlier this year. In fact, we estimate that Chenier bought more than 2.2 BCF a day of gas in 2019, which makes them one of the single largest buyers of U.S. natural gas. Now, once Chenier has liquefied that gas, they can either sell it to you free on board right there in the Gulf, or they can deliver it to you around the world and sell it on a DES, or delivered ex-ship basis. Typically, Chenier's customers pay a fixed fee of roughly $2.25 to $3.50 per MMBTU, in addition to a charge of 115% of the Henry Hub price, along with some other variable charges. So while both tolling and SBA structures charge fixed reservation fees, under the SBA model, Chenier is responsible for obtaining the feed gas, while under the tolling model, that burden falls on the individual capacity holders. Okay. I think it's important to note here, too, that other projects being developed in North America are pursuing different commercial structures. Tellurian and the LNG Canada project uh, plan to use an equity model uh, where buyers take an equity stake in a terminal and other things like uh, upstream production, shipping, and trading. Tellurian is requiring long-term customers to buy $500 million of equity in its proposed Driftwood LNG project in Louisiana for each 1 million metric tons per year of guaranteed offtake. Uh, the company plans to control costs by owning gas production, uh, pipeline transportation, and things like that. Other North American projects under development uh, are pursuing hybridized models uh, that would utilize components of the different uh, commercial structures. And that might be beneficial in a looser market like the one we have now with lower prices and a supply glut. But there are uh, other advantages that North American facilities have to offer that uh, we should probably discuss before wrapping things up. And and what stands out in my mind is the long-term contracts buyers have signed to take U.S. LNG. Pat, how are these any different from some of the more traditional contracts that have you know long governed the LNG trade? And and what are some of the advantages? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, top of my head, I can think of three primary differences. The first is that uh, these contracts tend to be tied to the Henry Hub, which means that the purchase price uh, of that LNG is much more closely linked to the actual feedstock cost or the supply. 
Now, traditionally, algae has been priced at some formula based on crude oil, which of course may or may not reflect true natural gas supply and demand fundamentals. But the second major difference is U.S. LNG doesn't tend to have destination clauses that would otherwise restrict where those cargoes are allowed to go. Under this model, these cargoes are free to chase the highest global price. And as a result of that, these contracts provide much more flexibility for both portfolio players and even buyers that may be able to secure cheaper supply elsewhere. Finally, U.S. LNG offers flexibility in the form of off-takers being able to cancel cargoes, which they can do with 60 days notice. That option to cancel can actually be very valuable for the cargo holder. And we've exercised and happened quite a bit so far this year. We estimate that there have been something like 150 scheduled cargoes from the United States canceled so far in 2020, which has wreaked havoc with feed gas deliveries to the various lower 48 facilities and has influenced U.S. spot market prices as well. Now, as of right now, and per the U.S. to Asia and U.S. to Europe arbitrage charts that we run each day in LNG Insight, U.S. cargoes to those two continents are very well within the money, but that simply was just not the case for much of this year. Now, overall, considering that U.S. LNG exports is approaching roughly 10% of total U.S. natural gas demand, we believe that U.S. fiscal and financial market traders alike would be extremely well served to keep a close eye on those U.S. LNG ARB curves going forward. And just to state that point a little bit differently, you know, up until just a few years ago, U.S. traders didn't really care all that much or have to follow what's going on in the rest of the world very closely, but that's just not the case anymore. You know, fundamental activities and prices in Europe and Asia can very much influence those in the United States, which in turn can cause not only Henry Hub prices to change, but also local prices differentials to change in other parts of the country. So just a long way of saying is that uh, domestic players really have to know what's going on internationally these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and those ARB curves are, are strengthening for sure. And we're also expecting a lot less cargo cancellations as prices improve. Uh, and Pat, I guess one last question. It's not an entire loss for U.S. terminals if off-takers cancel cargoes, is it? I mean, they're still earning some revenue from, from cancellations under their contracts, right? Yeah, they are. Chenier is a prime example of that. I mean, they, they certainly continue to get those fixed reservation fees. That's the nature of those take-or-pay uh, clauses. But in Chenier's case, they also have the option of taking those cargos themselves. So Chenier has a marketing arm. And you know, if, if one of their off-takers decides they don't want to take a cargo, Chenier's got the option of taking that cargo and moving it around the world. And they've got a trading business, and it very well could fit within what they're trying to do. So you're right. Just because uh, one company says they're not going to take a U.S. cargo doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to, to be delivered anywhere. And it certainly doesn't mean that the, uh, in this case, Chenier is going to lose 100% on the revenue there. Far from it, in fact. Yep. Yep. Okay. Just wanted to touch on that point. And, and listeners might be wondering, you know, how much these guys are earning on take or pay fees when somebody does cancel the cargo. And I can tell you that Chenier took in something like $760 million during the first six months of this year. So uh, pretty significant. 
Um, okay. Uh, I think that does it for today. Uh, thanks for joining me, Pat. And thanks to all of you out there for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. Natural Gas Intelligence is a price reporting agency that focuses on natural gas and LNG news, data, and price indexes for the North American markets. We believe that price transparency empowers businesses, economies, and communities. And this podcast is part of our effort to add to that transparency. If you have more interest in the global gas trade, please visit our website at natgasintel.com and be sure to check out LNG Insight. Until next time, stay safe and healthy. 